Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of CISO to CISO. I am your host, Michael Coates, CEO and co-founder of Altitude Networks and a longtime security practitioner in the trenches with many of you. Super excited to be here today with Bob Lord, uh, former CSO of the DNC, um, longtime security practitioner from Yahoo, uh, Netscape, and many other places. Uh, thanks so much for being here today. My pleasure, thanks for having me. Thanks for the coffee. Of course. Everyone's always curious about what does it mean to be a CISO uh, let alone running something for like the DNC. How did you find yourself yeah. there? Well, I think like a, a lot of people, I uh, have a, an unusual career trajectory. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty standard thing, and I think in our business. Uh, I remember uh, I worked at uh, Anderson Consulting many years mm -hmm. ago. Yep. And uh, I was the person who set up their first internet connection back when you had to write a business justification to do that sort of crazy thing. <laughs> And, uh, and so did that and then uh, moved out to California working uh, at their uh, technology lab. And the internet became more popular and uh, since that was my bag, so did I. And so security just kind of came along for the ride. Worked for a while at uh, Netscape and so I was one of their first security people, first mm -hmm. formal security person there. They may have no idea what Netscape is. <laughs> a long time ago, uh -huh. after the earth had cooled, there was Netscape. <laughs> and so continued uh, to uh, think about security and work in what we now call InfoSec, transferred mm -hmm. over to work in product engineering, so building software and shipping that, both for uh, browsers, you know, TLS, that sort of thing, as well as enterprise security. Found myself in a few other roles, wound up at, at Twitter, mm -hmm. um, which is, I think, not the first place we met, but uh, I think it was one of the first places that we mm -hmm. really had some good mm -hmm. talks. Um, went on to uh, to Yahoo, and uh, and obviously there was uh, that was a very interesting journey, uh, finding that breach and then uh, working with the Department of Justice to actually indict four foreign nationals, um, and uh, one of them uh, was arrested and put in prison. He just got out. Um, a month ago, something huh. like that. So, wow. uh, so yeah, time flies. Um, and I think uh, you know, after after the, each role, I think, well, I'm, I'm going to go do something different now. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, the world of security just keeps pulling us back in in one form or another. And so, um, I was talking to Rafi Kerkorian, who's the uh, CTO at the DNC. Mm -hmm. He used to work at Twitter. I think he did a little uh, little jujitsu on me and started asking me what sort of person would they need to bring into the DNC, given all the unique. Mm -hmm. circumstances and I gave him a, a laundry list of things and eventually I realized I was painting myself into a quarter <laughs> um, and so uh, so I, I decided to formally apply and then took the job. I mean I think we always say the cybersecurity industry is small and I think you know people that are listening and watching like yep yep they, they know us probably they know each other but in your journey like the parallels that I've seen like I started my career in consulting as well um, we obviously you know overlapped uh, at Twitter, yeah. it's fascinating the the different paths we take, but how everyone is, it's a one degree of Kevin Bacon kind it of It really is, it's kind of scary. Um, yeah, I'll run into people and I'll realize, oh, I've actually met you before, or I'll take a call with somebody and it's like, and, he'll, and somebody will say, I remember you from Black Hat and such and such year, and I was like, I remember that mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. So it is scary, scary small. Now, having seen you know all the things that you've seen, there's a lot of things in security that we've done a, pretty good job at. I don't think we give ourselves credit almost ever because our roles by necessity think about the things that are not going so well. 
But where do you think some of our biggest challenges are still at? Like, what are those unsolved problems or the ones that we don't pay enough attention to that we need to go back to? That is like the big question, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's, that's a huge question. I'll, I'll tell you one thing. I think there are a couple things that we do well uh, that have done well. Uh, and one of them is you say we don't give ourselves enough credit. And I think sometimes we just, we forget that a couple of things have gone really well. And I'm gonna tell you one of the things that has gone really well, and then I'm gonna tell you that there are people who don't believe me. Mm. The thing that has gone really well is TLS HTTPS. Mm -hmm. It's gone really well, surprisingly well. And yet, there are security professionals who on a regular basis will claim that you shouldn't do banking in a cafe, completely ignoring that that's the, that's the whole threat model for something like TLS, HTTPS. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's something we don't give ourselves enough credit for, the people who actually did the work to, to build the protocols and rev it every time somebody came up with a new attack, and I, you know, it's, a, it's a process. That's something I don't think we, we talk enough about. That's a huge success. I can't think of a bigger technological success than that. Um, the one that I think is up and coming is FIDO security keys. Mm -hmm. That's another technology I don't think we, we talk enough mm -hmm. about. Um, and in a world where almost every attack that we read about has phishing as a critical component to the attack, we have to start thinking about what is it that we're going to do to stop the phishing. And FIDO security keys stop that particular line of attack for credential uh, mm -hmm. attacks. And so I think those are things that are going well. And I think it would be nice if, if, as a matter of habit, we started talking more about the things that are going really well. You know, what's interesting about the TLS and the coffee house, the Wi-Fi scenario, I think it's a function of how fast our environment changes. Mm -hmm. Like you can think of the accounting profession, look at hundreds of years of approaches, whereas we are collectively figuring it out as we go, for better or worse. And once you figure it out, it has changed dramatically. I'm remembering, 10 years ago, sitting here in San Francisco in a different coffee house. And what was it called, Fire Sheep? Yep, yep. Yeah, I remember doing that for <laughs> research purposes. Hypothet hypothetically, yes. you may have downloaded yeah. it and run it. And that was 10 years ago when, yes, yeah. yeah, sitting in a coffee house and doing these things, you could intercept and absolutely easy. And here we are a short amount of time later, and we're like, stop talking about this. And I think absolutely. there are companies that have built their business on, well, that's what we're selling, so that yeah. needs to be the biggest concern. Absolutely. Well, I think, it, you made a great point, which is we did the threat model in 2010, and then we baked it, and we just said that that's, that's permanent. We chiseled that into stone. And we should go back and challenge those assumptions. And I think if more people went back and redid the threat model for almost anything that they're doing, they'll realize that the landscape has changed, the tools have changed, the people have changed, workloads have changed, and that they're not necessarily giving the best advice to people, and they're not building the right programs. But having said that, change is hard, and it's just not necessarily the kind of thing that's rewarded is to come back and say, hey, we won a victory, let's go back and, uh, and, and readjust. And also, nobody's really going to get in trouble for saying something is risky. That's true, I told you so, I told you so. You and, you can, and so you can always find the exception that proves the rule, but like a few things we actually did well and, mm -hmm. and we should just acknowledge that. And yes, there are some theoretical attacks. Yes, next year's uh, DEF CON may have an attack against the latest version of TLS. And that's part of the journey, but that doesn't mean that your banking information is gonna be stolen today. That's just not a thing that happens. Yep, I totally agree. It, it almost gets us to the area that we are collectively weaker at, which is threat modeling and risk management. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of us that join security through a very um, deep engineering path, and so things are 
secure or not secure, black and white. Right. And then the rest of the world and the business is definitely shades of gray. And Absolutely. that's where risk management lives. That, that's exactly right. And I think that's, it's, um, it's a hard thing to teach and it's a hard thing to get feedback on. And so, on a lot of things you have, if you're building code and it, it crashes or if it doesn't compile, you get feedback right away. Mm -hmm. But for things like threat modeling and risk management, you don't necessarily get the feedback right away. So you really don't know if you did a good job mm -hmm. or not. And it then becomes very easy to confuse effort and, and output and results. And so that's one of these things that is, I guess that's why we have things like red teams, that's why we have um, conferences, uh, and that's why we try to um, set up advisory boards so that we don't necessarily just believe our own hype, uh, that we try to actually get uh, third party views because it's just incredibly hard to get right, especially when you're soaking in the data and you're soaking when you're left to boom, you're soaking in hiring problems and budget problems and other teams not cooperating with you problems it's really hard to understand what are going to be the big things that right of boom will be obvious to a, a skeptical third party, a skeptical third party who actually knows how the attack happens. Going back and trying to do exhibit the right behaviors left of boom and doing the threat model, it is very, very hard to get that prioritized. Totally agree. Now, in terms of the areas we need to spend more time on, um, and I agree, we, we do need to celebrate the wins. <laughs> like, let's take those wins so we can get them. What are the areas that you're you're seeing? Like, you know, we tried we tried at this, maybe did well in some companies, but as an industry, we need to rethink our approach, or maybe even double down on things we're ignoring. Yeah, there's there's I guess a whole bunch of things come to mind. One thing that that is I think especially alarming is ransomware. Sure. Not because of ransomware, of course, that's alarming. I think the reason that I get very uh, very nervous about that is. Most ransomware attacks could be prevented by doing what we, you and I would talk about, security basics. Mm -hmm. And yet the list of companies that are getting compromised is massive. Uh, and what we know is probably only the tip of the iceberg because there aren't really reporting requirements in a lot of cases. And so what we see are these really challenging uh, situations where organizations are getting owned because they haven't done the, the basics. I mean, two-factor, I mean, a shockingly small percentage of both individuals and corporations use two-factor. Uh, we don't fully know the numbers, but you know, when I talk to people kind of behind the scenes, it's not good, even for the enterprise mm -hmm. customers. It's really not good. And so I think we have to think about why that is and, and try to come up with some, uh, some explanation for that. I mean, I, I don't have an explanation. I tweeted something this morning saying, hey, you know, we don't see any two-factor references in popular culture. And I actually found one, there was a, hmm. there was a TV show, and I, I included some screenshots. They were trying to break into a, a person's machine. They found his password under his ashtray, mm -hmm. and were almost about to get in, and then there was two-factor. And, <laughs> and then the, the hacker said, I can't get into this. <laughs> and, um, and so, I, but how many more references are there? So, you know, yeah. you have the security people telling you to use two-factor, but there's, there's nothing else that really points in that direction. So it's easy, I think, to ignore those signals. Um, but then a bunch of under, other things that have started to bother me, too. Like, uh, I learned early this year something I probably should have known many years ago, which is when you take a look at the CVEs that are rated at high or critical, two-thirds of those are memory safety issues. Mm -hmm. They're buffer overruns and things along those lines. These are things that we've been talking about for, you know, I've been talking about them with people for 10 plus years. Many people uh, older will say like, no, Bob, we've been having these conversations since the late 70s. 
And, sure. uh, and so here we are with two-thirds of our biggest vulnerabilities being something that we kind of know about, we know how to fix, um, and we don't, really, we don't really take the actions necessary. Um, some small pockets of innovation. There's a, a talk by, uh, by a guy from uh, Google, and he talked about the limits of sandboxing and how mm -hmm. they really push sandboxing. And then uh, after that sort of, sort of petered out a little bit and they ran into some diminishing returns, then they started really looking at things like finding high-value targets, modules that were likely to be targeted by attackers, and then they were rewriting those in Rust. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we talk enough about those kinds of, those kinds of wins, because I think that's a win, but just acknowledging that, um, that we have the systemic problem that we haven't really dealt with, I think that's, that's something that we, as a community, haven't done a good enough job of, of highlighting and promoting. Yeah, you know, the, the, the data I've observed there, which is interesting, is that the biggest aids to eliminating those types of memory safety bugs is moving to memory safe languages which means we didn't figure it out. It just became a non-issue. <laughs> and that's a little depressing. <laughs> um, but, but at the same time, the more we adopt technology and frameworks that take the security equation out of the hands of the individual, right. I mean, the better. And that's why you see the dramatic drop in you know, SQL injection vulnerabilities. It's been eliminated from something in the control of, of the developer in many cases. Right. The same thing with cross-site scripting. It often is not possible. Or at least you have to take specific steps to go and shoot yourself in the foot. And that's because the frameworks exactly. are safe by design. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And it's great. And I think that reinforces that to attack these big problems, we have to think about it from that huge holistic level, which is unfortunate when you look back at the major sets of software and like, well, that's not going to change you know, mm -hmm. language anytime soon. Mm -hmm. And so you have that classic, continual, historical problem. What do we do about this? Yeah. Well, I do think that there, there are some good, uh, good patterns, like, uh, like I said, picking targets of attack, likely targets, mm -hmm. and just rewriting that module, just that one little thing, and then moving on from there. So I think you don't have to swallow the elephant in one gulp. Uh, I think there are some, some good strategies to figuring out how to Think about things like the attacker, which you've done uh, mm -hmm. in many stages in your career. Figure out where the targets are likely to be, and uh, you know, figure out how to start making some small progress. Because if we'd started five years ago, we'd be in a different place today. Mm -hmm. And so, if we start today, you know, we'll be in a better place five years from now when we're when we're doing this again. So, for people watching, you may have remembered from uh, previous uh, episodes that we are somewhere in the world, and you may have astutely recognized that those were Zoom virtual backgrounds. And you may be wondering, what sort of magic have you done to make this very realistic Zoom background? Lo and behold, we're actually somewhere for real. Um, so Bob, why don't you tell us a little about where in the world we are? So far as I can tell, we are somewhere uh, on the West Coast, somewhere in San Francisco, America, uh, in the mission. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, this is a great, great, this is a real facility here. So this isn't just uh, you know, cranking up the, the notch on your, uh, on your laptop. This is actually a, yeah. a real, uh, what, I don't know what it is. That's right. And then boom, we all zoom back. You know, it's Ready Player One. We pull it out of the matrix. It's all, no, this is, this is in fact real. Um, but it is uh, fantastic to, to be able to do some of these things in person and have these conversations. It is so nice. Is, and it is good to see you face to face again. That's true. Yeah, even even seeing people again is its own adjustment. It's a, it's a new thing. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully like my, my table manners are okay. No, I, I'm waiting for you to like click the unmute button so I know that you're going to speak. Right. And, like all of my 
mental cues have been adjusted to the uh, online Click world. raise hand. <laughs> that would be good, the next conversation. <laughs> so Bob, one of the things I had in my mind from what you just said a second ago about the software manufacturers, and I remember I was talking about this before, but liability and incentives. And I think that's a fascinating area where we might not be in the right spot. You had some interesting thoughts last time we talked about that. Yeah, incentives I think are at the key of, of the root of all of these problems. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I think if you, you know, if I if I let go of my career and I let mm -hmm. go of my investments, I have to say just objectively, what is a smart thing for a company to do? And you have to say like running the company, and and mm -hmm. that's just the smart thing to do. And uh, I think organizations just have an incentive to uh, focus on that and make security not a top priority. And so a rational person at a company is not gonna do the things that I would like them to do. Um, that's for a whole bunch of reasons that would take too long to go into. But I do think that there are some ways in which we can start to shine the light in a, in a different place. So for example, I think we spend a lot of time blaming victims when mm -hmm. they deploy software and they don't deploy it in a perfect manner. Mm -hmm. And we spend a lot of time, I see a lot of articles, I see a lot of tweets from security people who will victim shame. And, and I step back and I think, really? I mean, yes, they should have patched. Yes, they should not have put this system on a network that allows it to connect to the internet. There's so many things that they should have done. But then I think these patterns are so pervasive and they're the same patterns that we've seen for the last 20 years maybe there's something else, maybe there's a different playbook. And so for example, there was recently a you know, major company that had uh, a big breach, and one of the contributing factors was that their system could talk to the internet. Companies that had locked it down didn't have this problem. And, and I just think, hmm, well, yes, you, they should have read the manual more, yes, they should have followed whatever their corporate or government standards were, sure. But how hard would it have been for the company to include in its detection system, in its, you know, when it's powering on, just to look out to see if I'm connected to the internet? And if that's, if that's a best practice, it shouldn't take long for the company to build in some kind of sensor to detect that that's the case. Um, and to alert people or in an extreme uh, case, just not run until you fix the problem. And so I think we spent a lot of time punishing the, the overworked sysadmins, but we don't shine the light on the larger SDLC mm -hmm. and the incentives that got the mm -hmm. products to where they are. Mm -hmm. And I think, that's, I think that's a missed opportunity, not to find root causes, because I think in a, in a world where you have dedicated human adversaries, intelligent adversaries, I don't think there's a really such a thing as a root cause, but there are real serious contributing factors to the ways in which these systems fail, and we really need to start taking a look you know, further left in the timeline, closer to when you know people were typing. So, using a memory-safe language, you find out, you know, as soon as you're typing the the line that is going to cause problems, it's not going to compile. And you know, if you're using Rust or whatever, it'll tell you what what you're doing wrong. Moving further and further left, and those are hard changes, and those require real commitment from organizations. But again, where's the incentive for them to do that when they're not? the ones who are getting blamed in public. So I think we just have to figure out how to kind of move the spotlight of people's attention to a place that's much higher leverage um, that will solve the problem in a more comprehensive manner. Yeah, it, it also reminds me um, when you were talking about, um, obviously patching is a core fundamental control. And at the same time, you know, sometimes it doesn't get done. And that, that empathy for why, and what my mind remembers is 
there's so many people in security that unfortunately start on a soapbox and their statements start with just or <laughs> simply. Yeah. And that is another failure we have to work through because this idea of, well, just patch all your machines. Like, well, let's step back and think about what that means. Like, yeah. agreed, it is a fundamental control and I'll put my money there all day long that that is one of the best things you Absolutely. should do. Absolutely. But to be able to patch all your machines, you have to know where all your machines are. Right. Inventory management is by far one of the most uh, difficult, fundamental things to do. And then it's not just putting a patch on there. Who knows what breaks? And so from a security mindset, we're like, well, you should make it secure. If it breaks, it breaks. Like, yeah, well, what if the business goes down? What if critical systems go offline? What if stoplights stop working? What if right. medical systems stop working? Right. The complexity of it gets so deep so fast. Absolutely. And the more empathy we have, I think, for the business operations, the more we are a business stakeholder, the better we'll do. Because there's still no denying that we shouldn't be thinking about crazy zero days, almost ever. But until we are doing all of those basics and fundamentals, like yeah. everything else is more work than the attacker's ever gonna take. They'll take the easy path every day if we give it to Absolutely. them. Absolutely. I mean, it's just gonna be basic economics. Mm -hmm. Like, why are you gonna drop a nuclear warhead when you can simply, you know, rattle the, the door a little bit and push and it, it pops open? Like, you just don't, you're not gonna work harder than you have to, generally speaking. We sometimes will focus on that short-term things. We'll say, you should have patched, and now I'm of the opinion that we need to step back and say, what's our actual advice? And I think in a lot of cases, I get a lot of pushback from this. I'm like, you need to get rid of your on-prem systems and you need to move to Outlook 365. Mm -hmm. Like, I, my advice is not to patch your on-prem exchange server. My advice is pull some all-nighters and get rid of that and move to something where you have literally a thousand plus security engineers, mm -hmm. 724, some of the best minds either at Google or Microsoft and just like those are your two choices. Is there a third choice? No, there's literally no third choice for your mail system. And and we don't step back to say, we we know you're not going to, you should have patched it, but we know you're not going to. So let's just take this thing out of the equation and then do some business process re-engineering. And I think that's where a lot of the big wins come from, um, is, is not trying to add security to the thing that's never really going to be made secure, but to go back and refactor it, working with the, the business owners. And I know that's really hard, and that's not necessarily a skill that we think is going to be important to our success, but I'm just taking a look at the last 25 years, mm -hmm. and you know, slapping security on things is just not going to work. Why? If it was going to work, it would have worked at some point in the last quarter century. Mm -hmm. um, you, know, you go to these trade floors, uh, the big conferences, and there are literally hundreds, 500 plus vendors. If adding those was going to work, it would have worked. Somebody would have raised their hand and said, oh, I, I found the, the combo. It's this thing <laughs> plus this thing plus this thing. Yeah. And it's never happened. Yeah. And it's not going to happen because that's just not the way, the back to incentives, that's mm -hmm. not the way the incentive structures are gonna work. So that for me is something I think we don't do a good enough job of is, is being opinionated, but then explaining why we think those opinions are valid and why somebody should do more than patch or buy another tool, why they should throw a whole bunch of stuff out that they know how to work, they know how to maintain it, they have to go back and retrain users, but once you do that, entire classes of problems mm -hmm. just go away. And I don't think we do a good enough job of evangelizing those kinds of uh, business process re-engineering opportunities. Yeah. If we learn from something we just said earlier about memory safety bugs only really being addressed when we change languages and frameworks, we can apply that same thinking here. Like, Stop managing these on on prem. Stop trying to patch them. Take it out of the equation. Right. And and to be fair, like moving to the cloud 
shifts the responsibility model. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you yeah. still have things in your responsibility, but far less. And I guess also stepping back to what we said before, how fast the industry changes. Again, think of 10 years ago, maybe even eight years ago, or some people last week. So many people like, the cloud is insecure. You can't, you know, right. blah, blah, blah. Right. And now we're like, put it in the cloud because then you get the army of security engineers from companies right. that have millions upon millions of dollars vested in that part of the problem. That's right. And back to your comment about how you can't say just. <laughs> you can't just move to Outlook 365. You can't just move to G Suite. So you know, when I got to the DNC, uh, we, uh, I went through an audit of taking a look at the security settings um, in, uh, in our G Suite uh, instance. And it turns out that Google has a really great document, which is uh, designed to help you tune the security settings. You still have to go through that. And in some cases, I had to go back and undo things, which was just kind of painful. Um, so when I went, say, oh, you have all these apps that people have added. Okay, well, I don't know what these apps are. So mm -hmm. I had to go through and do a deep dive on each one. Some of them looked a little sketchy. I had to talk to the people, do you really need this? Can I find you something else? Because I'm going to turn it off. And, and so, yes, that was a lot of work. So you don't just switch. But having said that, the kinds of responsibilities that we had were manageable, not free by any stretch of the imagination. And Microsoft has a similar document. So if you're using their on-prem on systems or their, their uh, online systems, yes, you have to go through and there'll be a bunch of defaults and for both companies. And you'll look at this and you'll say, why is this the default? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I really wish that you had not made that the default because now I have to go back and undo it and make some yep. people sad, but it's still a finite number of things that you have to do and you don't have to patch and then they've got the sensors and mm -hmm. all of that other stuff. Mm -hmm. So I, we just don't do a good enough job of evangelizing those kinds of solutions. Agreed. Now, speaking of the DNC and Google Workspace G Suite, um, you brought on Altitude Networks. Um, it turns out I did. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, which I was thrilled about. <laughs> so, you know, we've been working together for a number of years on that. What was the motivation originally as you were diving in and looking at all the settings? Uh, you must have noticed some, some things left to be desired. Some things, yes. Yeah, a whole bunch of things. So, you know, going back to like before you had first called. So, like, my general take is we don't need more security products. We need products that are secure. And again, walking the trade show floors is, is you know, exhausting and it is also not going to help you. And so my bias is to not have security products, but to really focus on what it is that we're doing and you know, reducing the attack surface, working with people to understand what they're doing. So when you called, I was like, yeah, Michael, let's talk. And you were like, hey, I've got this company. I was like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> the, the truth comes out <laughs> the behind truth the scenes. Comes out. <laughs> okay, here we go. And so, uh, you know, the weird part was there was this part of the conversation where you were telling me what you're doing. I was like, oh, actually, we do need this. <laughs> this is a strange thing because normally friends call, they've got their companies. I'll talk to them. It's always nice to catch up. But again, their, their products don't align with the kind of philosophy that I, I try to, to bring to an organization. So this was one I was like, oh, this actually is a problem that I want to solve. And, and it's one that, again, we don't talk enough about, which is, is when you have an organization that is not highly regulated um, and you don't have to worry about specific kinds of DLP that is kind of mandated, you still have this data slosh problem. You still have this problem where data is moving around in ways that are is going to weaken your overall uh, security posture, but it's not necessarily a solvable problem. So in other words, you're not just looking for credit card numbers or social security numbers or keywords. Mm -hmm. And so what we needed to do is help people understand what it was that they were doing as part of their jobs 
and at organizations like the DNC, people have to share heavily. Mm -hmm. So it's not just you know building systems internally, we have to work with outside people constantly. But who are those people and for how long and how much should get shared? And so all of those are just questions that we, we couldn't answer. We had no ability to even formulate the questions because we, we couldn't understand how every single workflow worked with all the different departments. Mm -hmm. And so we did a trial, and thank you very much for helping us get through that. Um, and I think one of the, the fascinating things was just better understanding what people were doing, not because they're malicious, not because they're mischievous, not because their accounts have been hacked, but because they may not have fully understood both how to use the tools, and they may not have understood the consequences of certain kinds of sharing and other activities. And so giving us a little bit of visibility was really important to helping them use the right tools. In a couple of very limited cases, we said, okay, we think you need to go put your files for public distribution over here. Uh, it's a separate workflow, but we're gonna help you, we're gonna support you. Um, but we wouldn't have known to do that um, except for having the visibility. So those are, it was, it was one of the things that, uh, you know, people are like, why do you want to buy this product, Bob? You always tell us not to buy products. <laughs> um, and so I had to go back and kind of walk them through the, through the logic. Yeah, the, the item you talked about around users just making mistakes and just not knowing what to do, it really gets back to that meta point of shades of gray. Like initially in your security journey or your security career, again, it's black and white. Like you did the right thing, you did the wrong thing. And then here we are saying we want to secure the business and the way the business operates and there's all these shades of gray. The user made a mistake. They didn't know that sharing a document by link was bad. Right. You know, Judy and Bob can still access the document, so why would I think twice? Right. Actually, well, I think as people know, sharing by link can be horrible because the whole company could access it, the whole world. That's right. And that's what we find as well, is like the vast majority of data risks, especially in the cloud, are mistake-oriented. I think um, mm -hmm. Gartner puts the stat at 60 to 70%. Um, and then maybe maybe 15 to 20% are actual malicious intent. Right. And if you ask the average security person, I think they'd invert that. They would say, ah, oh, the only thing that we have to think about is like the actual bad guy. Right. And they're like, well, that doesn't happen very often. So it's a once-in-a-lifetime type problem. Right. But the reverse is actually true. Every single customer we go into, like. Here's a whole bunch of stuff that's definitely at risk for breach because of accidents. Absolutely. And occasionally, more often than not, but we do find those malicious folks that, uh, you know, that's kind of unfortunately the trend. As you leave, you take data with you, which uh, as security people, we don't want. <laughs> yeah, we don't want that. The lawyers don't want that. It's, it's, it's really not good for anybody. Um, and it's actually not good for that person either because they can actually have liability associated mm -hmm. with that kind of action as well. So it really doesn't help anybody. Uh, but again, mistakes happen on a, on a regular basis. People don't know uh, about, uh, for example, Google's shared folders, um, mm -hmm. shared drives. If you don't know about it, you're going to get, engage in the activities that are that will seem to get you what you need to do, but they can also cause problems if you have turnover, if that person leaves and you have somebody else coming in. So there are technologies and techniques and processes that are just far superior but we can't expect them to know them all, and we can't expect the new hire to have figured all that out. So a little bit of insight goes a long way. Now, in, in terms of using the platform, if uh, others were considering using uh, Altitude Networks, who would you recommend it for and, and why? So my only experience is kind of within a smaller organization, sure. but I think, again, uh, you know, it was one of the few products that we, that we actually brought on, security products that we brought on, 
to give us visibility into um, a particular slice of activity. So obviously organizations that are worried about data slosh, which should be most organizations, I think that's, that's really key. Um, we're a small organization, but again, the insights were invaluable. I can imagine for a larger organization, it might even be uh, more so. Uh, you know, not speaking of any uh, one deployment in particular, but the the types of things we've seen have been uh, been fascinating. The brazenness of people that do decide to be malicious, as we were talking about when we were grabbing coffee. You know, people literally on their last day of work, adding their personal account mm -hmm. to a folder as a collaborator. So they're not emailing it, they're not downloading it. They're adding themselves as a collaborator. So when they leave, they can log back in. It's a back. Mm -hmm. It's a cloud backdoor. Interesting. And not only have we seen people do it, we've seen them do it, go to competitors, then log back in and view the files to target those customers at their new place. And it's just shocking. It's If we're gonna talk about some textbook stuff, like this is textbook <laughs> malicious. And I'm shocked the number of times we're seeing that uh, in deployments these days. But that could happen in any organization. Yeah, at the end of the day, I think everybody has something to protect, uh, regardless of the industry. And if your business doesn't have anything to protect, you know, Probably not a very compelling business. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> and getting back to the notion of usability, people want their businesses to be usable. They want to get work done. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about the old world of security, like do we want to come in with like the old traditional heavy-handed DLP nightmare? It's a very interesting world of like, well, what if we pivoted to empowering and usability? Right. Um, but it doesn't come without the responsibility of doing some security there too. That's right. That is one of the areas that you've, you know, definitely have seen in the migration to like a cloud adoption or even a work from home. Have you seen other big shifts as companies deal with that, either through, you know, COVID changes or just the natural uh, migration to cloud and all the things it brings with it? Yeah, so it's interesting. We've seen uh, everybody had to go home, mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, somewhat suddenly, <laughs> and, very suddenly, and then we probably not coincidentally saw concepts like Beyond Corp or Zero Trust really take off. And I know a lot of people roll their eyes because vendors have kind of taken that on and so many buzzwords, yes, done, yep. done their thing. Um, but I think that was. I think this has been a helpful thing if, mm -hmm. if there's any silver lining to this whole past couple of years, which you know I'm stretching here because uh, it's been a crazy, crazy ride, <laughs> crazy ride. But the idea that we can start to admit like just VPNing in back to your on-prem systems is just not going to work anymore. That's, you know. Unless you're in a coffee house? Unless you're in a no. coffee no. No, 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 no. You know how to push my buttons, man. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, you know, it, it gives people the opportunity to step back and say, I have to go buy 5X the number of VPN licenses. Mm -hmm. I got to go back and write a justification for this. And I know that when I have to go back and write this justification and present it, they're going to say, what's plan B and what's plan C? And and it gives people the opportunity over the last couple of years to, to actually write up plan B and plan C, which in many cases they've wanted to do for a long time anyway. But ch again, change is hard uh, and every day is a struggle as a, as a security professional. So are you really gonna make zero trust to cor beyond corp the thing that you're gonna, is that the hill you're gonna die on without some really compelling reason? Now you've got the compelling reason. So I think a lot of organizations have started that migration forward 
uh, a lot of a lot of sites have gotten rid of their on-prem exchange systems mm-hmm. and moved to uh, Outlook 365 or, or Google. What's the new name? Workspace. Google Workspace. Workspace. Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, I should call exactly. it by the correct name. Um, so I think a lot of have, have done that, but I think there's probably still a lot more to do, and um, I think it's it's gonna it's gonna continue over the next couple of years. But uh, we do have to look beyond the the buzzword, uh, the buzzword bingo. But underneath there is some really great methodology. Yeah, I've I've seen some interesting conversations happening still of, all right, we're going to invest in some security controls. Should we put them in the corporate network first, or should we not spend there and instead deploy them to all the endpoints, knowing that those people may not be in the corporate network? So this is on Slack today, right? (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Yeah, So so this is constant, and and, and it's a hard question because Mm -hmm. everyone understands upgrading the firewall. Everyone Mm -hmm. understands putting in a new system to monitor for abuse in the office. Now you have to go back and explain to people like, yeah, there's nobody in the office. Well, you've got some IoT things mm-hmm. and there's a whole world of, this old dumpster fire there uh, of, of security for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, but yeah, you got to kind of go back and figure out. And I think the more that you can treat your organization like a coffee house, um, probably the better you are. We're just not all going back to work. And people have moved, and I don't know how many of these you've seen, but I've seen so many job postings that used to say San Francisco or Sunnyvale or LA or Boston, whatever, and now it's remote. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't think we're, the pendulum's not gonna swing back to where it was before. Yeah, and and you have a fascinating reevaluation of those controls. It's like, all right, if we assume they're in a coffee house, and we're not going to have everyone, you know, full tunnel VPN, which is costly and perhaps yeah. not use it useful. Like, all right, how does our security work? Right. And then you're like, well, maybe they want to access from a new device. Like, are you going to require a sanctioned device all the time? Are you going to embrace BYOD, which sounds terrifying, but how could you do it? Right. Uh, and so then, yeah, everything everything shifts. Like, maybe we don't have security in the inline in the in the data center. Right. Or in the cloud, and could it, how does it work there? Right. Well, I mean, sometimes you, you have to make the shift and then you just deal with the fact that you don't have all the tools that you want. And so, you know, I'm old enough to remember a time when switched hubs came in. And so I was like, well, this is great. This solves a whole bunch of problems. It's obviously the wave of the future, but we have no tools to diagnose problems now. So, and then over time, new models came out and new tools came out so we could actually get span ports and all that stuff. So, but that wasn't there for the first versions of all those technologies. And sometimes you just have to say, this is the new train. I'm going to get on here. We're gonna have a deficit in some ways. Mm-hmm. We're gonna have a tool deficit, a visibility deficit, but I know that those, this is an unstoppable train, and I know that those kinds of things are gonna get fixed. Yep, and you can put that into an actual risk management plan. Like this is going to be a gap we have now, but this is something we're able to address in short term. Absolutely. This is a long-term plan that lets us address it, whereas before they were unaddressable problems perhaps. Well, and also people, <laughs> I saw somebody tweet out saying something along the lines of, uh, you know, during COVID people discovered that they had these gaps. I'm like, no, you've always had those gaps. You just discovered them mm-hmm. during COVID. Mm-hmm. People working in a coffee shop, if that was not secure, let me break it to you. They were working in coffee shops before. Yep. You didn't know about it. You had no controls for it. Now you're on notice because literally everybody's working in a coffee shop. So now you know that you have to go fix that problem. That problem existed long before COVID. To kind of put a, a cap on all this, what would you recommend to the next generation of security leaders? Those people that are saying, I want to join the field, um, I want to make a dent in this problem, 
what kind of advice would you give them looking back? Good Lord, I have no idea. That's a really hard question. <laughs> run, run. <laughs> run, 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 run. So I think we have to go back to incentives, and I think we have to be thoughtful about how those are constructed. So mm -hmm. I, I almost wonder if people, and I'm not suggesting degrees in this, but I mean, things that would be useful are things like psychology background, um, economics, um, and I think a lot of those uh, are just uh, any field where you have to really think more deeply than, than other people are, I think those are going to be value behaviors. You know, what are the, I don't know how to turn that into an action plan, or I mean, this is what you should study in order mm -hmm. to get there, but in the world of people, process, and technology, you know, we tend to over-index on, on the technology side, mm -hmm. but that's not where the hard problems are, and that's not where, that's not where the solutions are, and that's not really where the, the real fun is. Um, I think it's in the people and process, and that's, that's not something, again, back to the concept of this is, these are things that we don't talk about enough. So that's where I would spend a lot of time thinking. Mm -hmm. Business process re-engineering, figuring out a way to uh, migrate everybody off of whatever old thing that they're using onto something that's cleaner and faster. You're going to make them more productive. But how do you do that? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where the big wins in security are going to come from. How you plan for that, how you train for that, I think it's, I don't know. You, I'd, yeah. I'd look to somebody like you to help uh, help explain some of that as well. Well, I, I liked what you said there with how hard the people in the process part is. Because I think it those that are starting in the field may look at those three areas and think, well, the hard skills, hard, are the technical ones. The, the, they take them more brain power to figure out, to understand all the technical nuances. Whereas the people in process are like, oh, you're just writing policy. You're saying thou shalt not blah. And maybe at the very beginning, that could be true. But what I found is it comes full circle to exactly what you said, which is it gets very hard because it's human behavior, it's incentives, it's how does the business operate? Like you can make any sort of policy or technical change, but you could blow up the business and they could revolt and then you're fired. You're like, well, how secure is a business if you're not there anymore? And so I've always told people, you know, definitely learn the technical skills to have the competence in what you're talking about. Um, build the labs, learn hands-on, but yeah, it all comes back to a human behavior problem. If you want to influence more than just you as one person putting in the hours, yeah. you have to understand like why would somebody want to do what you want to do? Right. I've actually I've actually said if you want to be a good business leader, leverage your social engineering skills. Right. You have convinced someone to give you their password. You have made this thing in their best interest. Just switch out password for achieving security objective. Right. right and suddenly right. like you have, they want to do it for you. Yeah. They're thanking you for bringing them that opportunity. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it is, I know it's hard. Like, you know, I spend all day doing this and I, I just, I, I look at all the technology and I tell people all the time, you gotta log the hours. Like, you're not gonna be able to read a book and then know a technology. You're gonna log the hours, you're gonna have to build one. You know, you have to learn how to go build it in AWS and like, it's a whole thing. You're gonna have to log the hours. And so I, I recognize that there's tension between, you know, and I've told people this, like, you should probably say no to your friends on a bunch of nights and like on weekends and just like hack away. <laughs> and I tell them this uh, because that's how you're going to get good at the technology. And I know that that's at odds with what I was just saying, which is, yeah, but it's the people and process side that's going to be effective. So like, these are some prerequisites, yeah. but you're going to have to then figure out how to context switch and literally change the way that your brain is thinking then to say, okay, I know what we're doing with this technology. I know what we should be doing with different technology. And how do I convince people using persuasion or economics or whatever that this is a better path forward? And as soon as we figure that out, we'll probably write a book. <laughs> yeah, it, turtles all the way down is a good, a, a good yeah, uh, yeah, saying here. Yeah.
Well, Bob, thanks so much for taking the time today. My really pleasure. appreciate it. Hopefully the uh, coffee kept you it's going. delicious, yes, thank you. Not to say that, you know, cybersecurity isn't enough challenges to keep our <laughs> mind going forever. Uh, but this has been great. And uh, thanks everyone for joining us, watching the CISO to CISO episode today. Uh, hope to see you next time or uh, on the podcast. And thanks. Bye-bye.